Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the V podcast. Today, we're joined by two special guests, Professor Ed File and Dr. Natasha Kuto. Uh, Ed File is a professor of bacterial evolution at the University of Bath. His interests include genomic evolution of back- pathogenic bacteria of both men and animals. Early work is mostly on Staphylococcus aureus, where more recent work includes gram-negatives such as Klebsiella pneumoniae, particularly in an AMR and One Health perspective. But he's also worked on Borrelia, Burkholderia, Wolbachia, Melissococcus, Rhinobacterium, Vibrio, Streptococcus, Neisseria, E. coli, Mycobacterium, Bartonella, and amongst many, many others. And he also has an he also has an interest in both bees and aquaculture. Dr. Natasha Couteau is a data scientist at the Center of Genomic Pathogen Surveillance at the University of Oxford. Natasha is a veterinary doctor and got her PhD in 2016. Her research focuses on the molecular epidemiology, population genomics, and ecology of a broad range of bacterial and viral pathogens of both animals and humans. She uses next-generation sequencing and bioinformatics to understand transmission of bacterial and viral pathogens and the emergence and spread of AMR between humans and animals. She's worked on a range of organisms as well, including MRSA, Staph, E. coli, Klebsiella, all of the Enterococci and Enteromycobacterium, including abscessus and TB, and flu, and also pigs. So welcome to you both. It's great to have you on the show today. Hi. Thank you. Yeah, hello. (laughs) And we decided with the two of you to talk about a couple of different subjects. One of them might be about multi-local sequence typing, but today let's have a chat about One Health. So I'll start off with an easy one. What exactly is One Health, since it was in both of your background introductions? So so really one, One Health framework is itself sort of evolved from an earlier kind of idea called one medicine and it's really a a synthesis of the it's an attempt to let me let's it's an acknowledgement that in order to manage amr effectively we need to not only think about what's happening in the in healthcare settings in hospitals but also take into account our use of antibiotics and the the consequences of antibiotics present in agricultural settings and also in in, in environmental settings, the rivers and the the soils and such like. There's a a sense that if we only focus uh, clinical settings, then we're in a sense ignoring the far bigger picture that's happening out there where there is plenty of resistance evolving and emerging which at any point could perhaps enter communities, enter healthcare settings. So we need to, to, to be much more joined up in our thinking about how to manage this big problem of, of AMR. 
Natasha, anything you want to add to that? I think that was a very good explanation. Yeah, it was an excellent explanation. I think as a veterinary doctor, what I would add is just, you know, this this one health approach was was not is not li- linked only to AMR. It's linked to disease in a, in any kind or or trying to make you know all of these different sectors healthy, and that by making all of them healthy, you will have you know a better planet almost. <laughs> let me ask you a let me ask you a question, Natasha. So so Ed pr- put it in perspective of AMR. Would you say that One Health is is more than just AMR? Are there other components? Yeah, so there, there's definitely other components. As there's much more than than AMR. There, I mean, we could think about other diseases other than bacteria that carry AMR, like viruses and and fungi and parasites. So it's definitely more than than AMR, and and you can translate it into many other diseases, and it's. It's it's trying also to, you know, learn from from these different perspectives and try to apply it to to the other sectors to help improve health as one thing. Let's say one health. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. Yeah, I didn't make that clear. I mean, one health covers all all, all manner of, of of aspects, and as Natasha said, it's a it's a general sort of framework for managing the whole kind of biosphere. AMR has been described as as a quintessential one health problem because it, it, it because of this interconnectedness between all the different sort of settings that we have. So I think we'll get right into something meaty now. I want to talk about the confusogram and just to face some ruffle some feathers. So what exactly is the confuso one health confusogram? Yeah, so this this picture that I had here was actually taken from a slide from from Ed. And I mean, you see this this picture where you have, you know, the hospitals and the humans and the animals and the environment and these arrows between these different sectors. You see it very often, you know, by different different authors. And I mean, we agree with it, with the principle that, you know, these sectors are connected and that they're there might be transmission between these different sectors when it comes to AMR bacteria or, or AMR determinants or, or plasmids that can carry those determinants, for example. It's just that what we need is to actually quantify this risk, quantify the transmission. And I think that's what's, what's been lacking. And, and we are getting more information with these new you know, studies that, that have included these big data sets. And so what we, are, what we are trying to see here is indeed to try to quantify the risk and say, and, you know, put a kind of a, how do you say, well, basically quantify the risk of transmission between, between these different sectors. And if there's this, this flow is impeded by the ecological barriers. And so if a certain strain goes from one of these sectors to the other what what is it what's going to happen is it going to adapt to this this new sector is it going to spread or is it going to only infect one person but then there's no onward person or or animal but there's no onward transmission and so the risk is low because it's just one spillover event but then there is no onward transmission so that's what we're trying to do and what we've been trying to do for the past three years, we, well, Ed has been working on this for a longer time, 
But at least for me, when I started working with, with ad, was we're, we're trying to answer this question. We're trying to quantify the risk of transmission. Yes. Yeah, so if people, we'll try and add the picture to the show notes, but if you just look up something like One Health in any search engine, you'll see, this, you'll see lots and lots of these delightful pictures that show little circles of animal and clinical and human and they'll usually put a nice picture of a globe on it as well. And they'll have arrows. They'll just integrate these with all with arrows. And I think Natasha, what you're saying is we've established that there is the circulation between all these different niches and, and sectors, but it's not enough to say that it's circulating. We need to actually understand what's the mechanism but to, that, that this is occurring and understand to what extent each of these are jumping through the different sectors. So, I mean, it's, this is a hard question, but in a given situation, like what is the comparative rate of zoonoses occurring and then the subsequent actual establishment of, say, an outbreak from that. So do you see like lots and lots of intermittent cases, like multiple jumps over and over again? And then what rate of that actually kicks off and we see it, we, we see it in the clinic? I think I could take a step back almost, and, and this might sound slightly tangential, but um, the reason I've been thinking about the, the the confusogram specifically feeds into something that's been sort of increasingly bothering me for for a few years actually and it's just the power of figures we're not very good at scientists in acknowledging and appreciating just how much of a sucker we are for a nice figure and actually there's how much sort of confirmation bias can go on when we see a figure when we see a figure like the confusogram when we just got lots of settings lots of arrows going everywhere there's nothing explicitly stated there, but there is nevertheless this impression that everything can flow unimpeded from everywhere to basically everywhere else. There's a hypothesis intrinsic to that figure, which we don't explicitly state and we don't explicitly examine. And that's that's the kind of thing that I'd quite like to sort of expose and bring out to the light a little bit more, that we could actually look at that figure and ask the question, well, that's kind of stating a null in a sense that's stating a null hypothesis where flow is in a sense unimpeded but is that really true let's start from that basic assumption can and if it's not true what what where are the barriers what's what were the mechanisms of of, of the possible barriers out there whether they're ecological or biological or whatever and then let's start from there let's examine this figure as a hypothesis and I think that's really what what we've been trying to do. And this idea of of, of figures, I mean, it's, it's as I say, it's, it's sort of it's been of an increasing worry over recent years because, especially in the genomics literature, there's so many beautiful figures in so many papers now. It all they almost seem to be taking over from the words somehow, and they look lovely because the software is so good and the and the the the, the analysis software is so good. But I, I I quite like to see some papers with just really you know very minimal figures occasionally where it's actually the 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 hypothesis is actually written down not somehow embedded in in the lovely figures so that's that's really i mean i'm 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 basically saying the same thing that you've said already that we're we're we wanted to test this idea that okay 
there's clearly potential for everything to move everywhere else. Um, there's no reason why there should, on the face of it, be any barriers between the you know what people people in the communities and the and the pigs or whatever bacteria bacteria they can they can move around in all sorts of ways. But let's think about what might actually limit that transmission, and that comes down to ecology. Actually, I think as much as anything. And that's something we know very little about. We know very little. It comes down to host adaptation. It comes down to the role of the of the of the pan genome. It comes down to the movement of individual elements. So this is a transmission. We've been talking about transmission of of the of the bugs, but then overlaid that we've got the transmission of the genes as well. So that's a whole different layer of complexity. But if there's a lot of local adaptation, if there's a lot of if, if the selective landscape is very very rugged then you would intuitively imagine that actually there might be quite substantial barriers of movement between one back, one setting and another. Yeah. So I was wondering how much of a feedback loop is there? Are we seeing things that are, say, highly AMR resistant in hospitals bleeding into, you know, wild birds and into farming? Does it get down that far? We do see it. There's, there are studies where they've looked into wildlife, birds, for example, and also into wastewater, wastewater coming out of, of the hospitals. And if you if you do lo- look into, into, into that, of course you, you will find it. I mean, we, we did a study in, in Bath where we looked at the river, at, right? It was at the river and, and we looked for Klebsiella and we did find, interestingly, Klebsiella arnitinolytica, which is is not a common pathogen, so it usually lives in the in the environment with the eight, for example. And it was very, it was unexpected, also because it was not, at least to to our knowledge, it's not causing any sort of major outbreaks or infections within the hospital. But if we look for it, we do find it in the environment around around the hospitals, for example. Um, I mean, how much is it? how much of it is really coming from you know from humans from the hospitals or it's just a matter of survival of these species within the environment because of you know local adaptation as ad said and and competition with it with other um you know microorganisms i i tend to say that people tend to forget that antimicrobials are actually derived from most of them at least are actually derived from from natural compounds that are, you know, that have existed for thousands of years in our planet, so on Earth. So it's it's just normal that we do find these is AMR determinants, of course, in a lower level in the environment and and in animals and even in humans. But of course, you know, the pressure that that we've created due to the use of these antibiotics increased the the, the frequency of these genes. But to answer what, what you just asked, I think, yes, if you do look for it, you will find it. Do I have anything to add to that? Yeah, so as Natasha says, if you look for it, then then you will find it. But when, when people, so many of the, of, of the sort of environmental surveys are carried out where you actually select for antibiotic resistance, so you put antibiotics in, in the media. And this, of course, m- gives you the best chance of finding something and therefore having something to write about. But it doesn't necessarily give you a very good picture of how common that resistant gene or resistant strain is in that 
particular setting where you sampled. So when we, I guess we come on to talk about the, the, the SPARC study later, which has just been accepted in Nature Microbiology, by the way, I had proofs yesterday, so that's very exciting. So in this study, this was a big one health study in, in and around a city in, in northern Italy, Pavia. And that region was chosen because it's a hot, a hot spot for these carbapenemase producing Klebsiella that have the KPC gene. There's very high prevalence of, of these carbapenem not susceptible clones in the hospitals of this region. And we took a big sample from the hospitals, from the community, from the various farms, from the environment, all taken all, all the samples were contemporaneous, all within like a sort of 15 month period, all within a defined region, which is very important, of course, because you want to give yourself the best chance of finding transmission and finding this evidence for sort of leakage from the hospital into the environment. We didn't select for antibiotic resistance in this study, and we didn't find a single example. We took, ended up sequencing three and a half thousand genomes, something like that. And we didn't find a single example of carbapenem, carbapenem non-susceptible Klebsiella pneumoniae outside of the hospital. Not one, either, either genotypically or phenotypically in this big, big sample. So it's not to say it's not there, but I think even in that setting, even in northern Italy, it seems, it seems that there is a, it's likely that these resistant clones can be hospital adapted clones can be outcompeted quite quickly in the environment that's something which has been you know proposed many times over the years with different bugs with mrsa hospital acquired mrsa as well so it, it, it's a slightly confused picture because of the differences in methodologies and also because of course what's true in northern italy might not be true for for chad or for cambodia or, or places where there's a lot more where the antibiotic stewardship is different and maybe there's a lot more contact between humans and animals and that sort of thing. So there doesn't seem to be penetration. There's certainly not unimpeded flow of hospital <laughs> hospital type bugs in the environment. But as, as Natasha says, there's plenty of resistances out there, which is what you'd expect anyway, because you know, antibiotics are, are, have been around a lot longer than we have, and the resistance genes have been around as long as antibiotics have. So, so it's it's a complicated picture, and I wouldn't say that there's no resistance out there, of course, but I'm saying that that in terms of the direct feed feed through from the hospital into the environment, it may be less than than perhaps some people imagine it to be. Yeah, I want to I want to touch on that because. We're talking about antimicrobial resistance, which must be a great metabolic load on the organism to, to keep these systems available. I mean, some, some systems probably are, are, are not as complicated as others, but surely this is detrimental to the bug that it has to, it has to tolerate and, and avoid antimicrobials in the long run. So surely it doesn't really want this. Yeah, well, that's often the assumption. And, and in some cases, there's experimental data to, to back that up. There's a fitness cost to having harboring resistance genes or resistance plasmids if you haven't got the antibiotic around. But there's other experiments and, then, uh, and, and, and plasmids where there doesn't seem to be a very big cost at all. I mean, the, the, plasmid, the, the study that Natasha mentioned before with the, with the uh, ornitholytica having the, it was a Blaroxa 48, it's another carbapenemase gene. There's not so much evidence that that has a really big fitness cost to the to the cell and in fact it might not even have been 
doing anything that plasmid in those in those cells it might have just been sort of stealthily hanging out they weren't phenotypically resistant those cells which is kind of interesting so if we had selected for resistance we wouldn't have found those resistance plasmids which is kind of you know that's something not to how think it about. works ed <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's but it's quite quite interesting indeed and, yeah. and i mean during imam there was a talk about also in in human patients how this exactly the, the plasmids that carry the, this OXA48 and can, they can kind of switch on and switch off the, the production of the protein, let's say, of the, of the mechanism of resistance. So they, they, the, the plasmid mutates to kind of silence the, the gene. And so there's not, not much cost if, if there's no production of the, of the gene and of the protein. And I remember that there was a recent tweet as well, kind of you know, talking about this, you know, this hypothesis that indeed these plasmids carry, they are very costly for the, for the cell. But in truth, you can, you, you can actually see when, when you draw some of, you know, follow, you do some population structure analysis that some of these plasmids are actually expanding with, with their, with a specific clone. So there isn't, an obvious association between one thing and the other. And so if, if these plasmids were very costly, you wouldn't see this, at least for some, you know, plasmid host associations. Yeah, so I think that's more like of an, an assumption, but at, in reality, that's it's not as simple as that. No, it's not sounding very simple at all. We're not having any <laughs> clear cut black and white on, on any of this. <laughs> which is which is a real shame <laughs> so if i find a gene it doesn't mean it's resistant if it if it if it's resistant it might not have the gene i mean wh where do we how should we then think about this is it more thinking of an activation energy a series of different factors as you're coming back to what you're saying about risk natasha like we we would assess the AMR, the disease potential, the zoonotic potential, should we think of it that way rather than this clear-cut pathogen bad, commensal good, that sort of attitude that we've, we've seen in the past? Yeah, I think, I mean, having worked on, on a specific disease in dogs while I was doing my, my PhD, I was working on atopic dermatitis, which is a condition that affects dogs and most of of these dogs that develop secondary infections due to a cousin of Staph aureus, Staph intermediates. And, you know, dogs, healthy dogs live with Staph intermediates all their lives without developing any sort of infection. But some people would consider these Staph intermediates as pathogens, as really bad guys, like you said. And I don't see it that way. I mean, I think in, it's a matter of opportunity. It's a matter of chance, to be honest. I think, you know, if, if we coexist with these, with these microorganisms, they must be beneficial to us as well. And we are beneficial to them. So it's a matter of balance. And if there's a disruption of this balance, then there is a chance that they will, you know, that they will invade and, and cause a more, a more serious infection. And of course, there are certain species that are more prone to, do, to doing this, like Staph aureus, E. coli, Klebsiella. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the bad guys. I mean, if we, 
if if they exist in our guts or in our skin, it's it must be because they're beneficial to us. So I I don't really believe they're they're bad guys or good guys. I think you know it's a matter of balance, and not disrupting the balance is the best thing. <laughs> if you were presented with a with a with a culture of a, a nice harmless lactic acid bacteria and a culture of together or something you 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 go for the lactic acid you drink the lactic acid bacteria first right so there are clearly some bugs which are more dangerous than others but i think natasha's absolutely right in 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 pointing out that context is really important and actually there's a very fine line between a bug living quite blamelessly as a commensal and it being quite a dangerous pathogen and and this context can be on all sorts of levels it could be subtle genomic changes in the bug it could be changes in the the, the microflora that the the, the the community that the bug is living i mean see just not a problem when it's at a very low level in the gut it's only when it overgrows that it becomes a, a, a problem it could be a, the context of where it is where where it happens to be in the body i mean it's a, a, a bug can be completely harmless in the gut but if it gets like e coli's a great model for you know all the different epex and upex and all these other things they have they have particular virulence attributes according to where they are so context is 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 everything really with 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 virulence and it's and the the, the distinction between a, a bad guy and a good guy is is can be extremely subtle like the difference in in one gain or even loss of 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 a single element or a single gene and, and to some extent, the same can be said of the genes themselves. I mean, many of the things that we talk about as virulence factors, they are genes which will increase the ability of bacteria to adhere to host tissue. They may have been horizontally acquired from other species where they're, where, where they're actually, these genes are carrying out quite different. And so there's not even good and bad genes in that sense it's all it's all i hate to use the horrible horrible term emergent property you don't hear that very often anymore thank god but it, it's kind of it kind of sums up what the, is it that the, the virulence is 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 a consequence of a whole load of 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 other factors other than just the bacteria or just the genes that happen to be there in context like you said uh, Context is all about context. I have a I have a question that bugs me all the time. I was asked this as a student, and I don't have the answer. Is flagella a virulence factor? Well, it, it's a case in point, isn't it? So it can be, <laughs> but, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, if you're just a free free swimming vibrio splendidus or something, then you know you're not you're not bothering anybody. But or even in E. coli, yeah. Even in E. coli, yeah. yeah. And, right. I was wondering. With all this One Health approach, right, all of our sequencing so far has really been targeted towards pathogens in humans, which cause disease in humans, and there's a little bit for veterinary pathogens, but then there's not very much for commensals. So how much are we actually missing in general when we look at the One Health approach, you know, if we're only really, you know, if the bulk of the work is on on human pathogens? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I've, I've had a lot of discussions about that with the work that, that I've been doing at the University of Oxford at GPS, how would we, you know, how would we frame what we need to do to have, you know, better 
a, a better overview of, of what's of what's happening should we aim to sequence only the resistance the resistance strains or should we actually look at the commensal ones as well should we focus on on the ones that cause disease in in hospitals because there's now that's where humans are dying of of AMR infections, or should we should we look into you know should should we look at at the other non pathogenic strains or or species and try to find AMR determinants before they become before they expand and and cause and 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 be transferred to more pathogenic species. So I I don't have an answer to that. And I, I really would like to hear what Ed has to say about that. And I think, you know, when when we were at EMAM and Hayo was, I'm sorry if I, I don't know if I can say names, but, uh, but Hayo was was presenting his his view on, on where we should focus the resources. I, you know, I kind of agree with him that if, the main problem is is within the hospitals that people are, are dying of infections that cannot be treated with antibiotics. Then we should focus on those pathogens that are causing infections. But in a way, if we want to prevent it, prevent it from happening, you know, preventing a certain AMR determinant or a, a certain lineage, for example, from expanding and becoming a global problem, then we we need to start looking before that happens. So we need to start looking at the susceptible commensal population. But I, I don't think we have a right answer. At least I don't have. I agree. I mean, there's there's different questions here. So there's different there's kind of different levels of one house. So the question of where should we prioritize our day-to-day management of AMR and infectious disease in general. I think it's clear that we concentrate on where it's happening, where we can see it spread, which is in the, the healthcare system predominantly, in the community community outbreaks, of course, but probably not worry so much, at least in, in you know, high resource settings, about there being a the risk of there being a, some really horrible virulent resistant thing pop out from the local cows. Um so that's that, but that's at that sort of immediate level, which is what you you know the direct management of disease but then there's this existential threat of or, or risk of you know where do, where where does the resistance come from where does virulence come from it all comes from out there originally so if we want to understand the the drivers of 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 resistance why these benign bugs can turn nasty what are the what are the ecological conditions that drive virulence then we need to have a much better understanding of and absolutely take on board what's going on in non-human systems. We need to think about not just, you know, livestock, but think about plants, think about insects, think about wild animals, which are really hard to work on when it comes to infectious disease, because they tend not to present to hospitals. They just die. Fish (laughs) fish in particular just sink. So they're really hard. That's what I was saying earlier about virulence genes. I mean, some of the key the toxin genes in, in cholera, they, they look similar to the, the, the symbiont of the of the squid, fisheri, vibrio fisheri. So there's genes which are similar in the, you know, they, they've evolved in a completely different context. And it's only when we get, we, you know, fully understand, if we want to understand virulence, which is actually quite a lot harder than resistance, I think, because it's a, it's a much more multi-dimensional thing then we need to consider the whole 
virulent, if that's a word. If it's not, it, it is now. So, yeah, I mean, if that's what you're getting at, Andrew, I think that that's absolutely right. But in, in the, if, if our question is, you know, how do we stop this 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 particular strain of MRSA or whatever spreading, then we stop it spreading by infection control in the hospitals. So I had a follow-up question to that. Since both of you have looked at both angles, how much overlap is there between a project that's looking in zoonoses versus looking at, say, a hospital outbreak? Is, is the knowledge from one transferable to another? Is, or do we need to start thinking of these as separate streams with separate approaches? Mm. That's a really <laughs> tough one. So some of the methods are the same. So it's all A's, T's, and G's and C's. I mean, what we're interested in here, right? So, so a lot of the a lot of the 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 the, the sort of bioinformatics and the analysis is also being the same. The, the models of transmission and vector-borne diseases, you have to take into account the reservoir hosts, right? So if you're talking about Lyme, you have to have some idea of what the not just what the ticks are doing, but what the deer or the pheasants or the shrews or whatever it is that the ticks are feeding on what they're doing so you have another layer a massive layer of complexity there so we can't just do the simple bill infects fred on ward a and then the nurse goes to the next ward that those sort of outbreak analysis just won't work in those in those more complex environmental settings especially for vector-borne diseases um in terms of like host switches, I mean, we've seen what can happen with host switches with COVID, right? But that was very much an exception in that I think probably these these things jump between hosts all the time, but they almost always just fizzle out. The fact that COVID could hit the ground running and go straight into human-human transmission was an aberration in many, and that's something that we need to really try and understand the best we can, whether this is because there do seem to be more frequent events of these host, host spillovers in recent decades. So whether that's something, how we're changing the, 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 the habitat, how we're changing animals coming into contact with, a, with each other and pathogens are responding by being able to jump from one animal to the other much more easily. There may be some general sort of framework that we can understand about that. But um, it's, again, it's, it's that's very different from the, from the sort of hospital epidemiology that we're used to. And Tasha, anything to add to that? It's a very, I know it's a very hard one. No, I just, I agree with that. I think the tools available are the same, but the questions are very different. I mean, at least when, when it comes to, you know, trying to, to find the drivers of, of AMR transmission. <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess if we were talking about, you know, um, analyzing an outbreak in, in a hospital or analyzing an outbreak in a farm, I mean, there are parallels, of course, like, like Ed said, the, the behavior, the human behavior is different. I mean, I think we are the main drivers of, of, of outbreaks transmission anyways, the way we behave either nurses or veterinarians or or medical doctors but yeah so i think it's uh, different i mean if we tr if we're also trying to understand like amr transmission in in human communities then there's a whole other layer of social science as well that we need to get on board with people's behavior people's risk perception people's you know how how well they comply with the with the advice they're given whether they take antibiotics when they need them or whether they don't take them when they need them you know all these things we need to get a full grasp of. 
All right. And I think on that note, I think we'll draw to a close on that forward-looking uh, outlook from, from Ed. So I want to thank both Ed and Natasha for their time with us today. And thank you to listening to the MicroBinfi podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.